uh, yeah, got this message today called The Hurdle, The Word. I remember being young just a few uh, moons ago, um, and what was quite common, and you'll know if you're a young person, is staying the night at your friend's house. Go for a sleepover. I feel like sleepover is a weird way of putting it. But anyway, I would go and stay the night at my friend's house, and it always felt really exciting for me because my household growing up was a bit of a broken one. It was a bit messed up. At my house, we ate spaghetti bolognese like every night. I, that's close to being true. That's a slight exaggeration. But honestly, four or five nights a week, it was spaghetti, spaghetti bolognese. Thanks, mom. Love it. Mm. Um, so we had that every single night. So when I would go and stay the night at my friend's house, because it was the weekend and because their parents weren't spaghetti bolognese fanatics, sometimes we would get treated to McDonald's. Ooh, and it felt like such a treat. Like, because my mom never got us McDonald's. So when I stayed the night at my friend's house, it always felt like such a treat when we finally got McDonald's. See, the desire in my heart was always there for McDonald's. I always wanted McDonald's, but when I actually got it, it felt like a real victory. And now that I'm an adult, I can report that the desire has not left me. It has not gone anywhere. It has probably, uh, I would say, I'll claim upgraded to KFC. Um, I love KFC. Um, But the problem is, is that every time I'm driving towards a KFC, I can smell it. I don't know how they do that. I don't know what sort of conspiracy is going on there, but I'm 100 meters away. I can smell the KFC. And it takes everything in me to resist the urge to pull in and get some little nuggies. Um, Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, But upholding that as you drive past the KFC is one of the modern day trials and tribulations for Christians. In a moment of weakness, admittedly, I might give in. And while it tastes absolutely delicious and I feel like I'm on a high, as a kid, it felt like a victory, but as an adult, it feels like a defeat. As we become older and more mature, as we begin to understand the reality of the world we're in and the bodies we've been given, we start to realize that meeting every desire within us would be absolutely terrible. Like, if I let my internal desires dictate my life, I would be morbidly obese. I would be selfish, rude, and greedy. All of us, by default, would be very self-absorbed absorbed, and self-focused people. And yet we find ourselves living in a culture, a growing culture, that is all about promoting this idea that our internal desires hold the strongest authority in our life. If you want it, have it. If it feels right, it is. If someone affirms it, it must be true. If it's your truth, then who can argue with it? Even famous brands get on board with this. Nike, just do it. Burger King, have it your way. Coca-Cola, open happiness. You know this one, L'Oreal, because you're worth it. Thank you, I am. (laughs) You don't need to look far to discover that this herd mentality is no longer just considered a majority, it's considered an authority. That there is no longer a firm foundation for us to stand on. Right and wrong is self-decided. What happens just in this life is all that there is to consider. And the term tolerance has been rephrased to mean agreement with the loudest voice. But we can all be a little bit guilty of this sort of thinking, if if we're to be honest. We're quick to give the advice, just listen to your heart. Now, I don't know if your heart has recently graduated from Harvard, but mine, if I reflect on my life, um, is still in the same spot as being a completely untrustworthy sense of direction. There's no way that my heart can be trusted. My heart tells me to pull into KFC every single time. But my mind, and, and thankfully godly wisdom, steps in and slaps me across the face and says, don't listen to your heart. It's not right. It's deceiving. In fact, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
Now, what your heart wants and desires isn't necessarily bad or unhealthy, but we cannot and should not assume that by default it is good. Because actually by default it is not good and it does lead us astray. It's really interesting. In 2014, there was a study by the University of Exeter that um, said that our natural desire to, be part, to want to be part of the in crowd could damage our ability to make the right decisions. And a summarizing statement of the study, it said it like this, I'll read it as it said it. It says, the result is that groups evolve to be unresponsive to changes in their environment and spend too much time copying one another and not making their own decisions. See, going against the grain and going against public opinion is not the point. But going in the right direction, building your life on the truth of God's Word, and looking to Him as your source of wisdom and direction, that is what we've been called to, even if it means sometimes going against the grain. And Jesus was really clear that the majority didn't equal authority. Let's take a look at Luke chapter 9. It should come up on the screen, and it's in your notes there. It says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples were with Him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? What, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you're God's Messiah. See, Jesus asking, but what about you, wasn't a correction. Jesus wasn't like, hey, hey stop talking about the crowds. I'm wondering about you. No, Jesus actually did ask them what the crowds thought. And then it was in light of that answer that he then went on to say, okay, cool, acknowledged. Now, what is it that you think? And so Jesus is asking them, what do the crowds say about me? What is the public opinion of who I am? What picture has culture painted of me today? And their response was classic. Oh, you know, some think this, others think that. They don't really know what they think. It's kind of all over the show. And then Jesus says, okay, and who is it that you say that I am? I find this fascinating because the very fact that Jesus is asking this follow-up question gives us permission to think different from the crowd. Jesus didn't hear what they said. Oh, so some say Elijah, some say John the prophet, some say some other prophet that came back to life. Is that what you will think about me? No, he said, what do they say? And then he heard what they said about the crowd. And he says, okay, that's cool. Now, what is it that you say? I need you to know that you are allowed to think differently from the crowd. It is okay to think different and hold a different stance from the crowd that is yelling around us. And Peter essentially said, you know, these others, they've got this warped perception of who you are, but I believe you are the promised Messiah. And in a changing and shifting world, in a culture that doesn't really know what it's trying to be, it has never been more important to start with this core recognition. The crowd might say that what matters most in life is that you feel happy. But what is it that you say? The crowd might say, sex, that's just for fun and marriage isn't really necessary. But what do you say? The crowd might say, church, oh, that's, that's uplifting. That's a nice optional extra when you can fit it into your schedule. Crowd might say that, but what do you say? The crowd might say matters of sexuality, gender, and marriage are issues of preference and self-determined association. Perhaps they might say that, but what is it that you say? The crowd most certainly says that Jesus is fictional, that at best he was just a good moral teacher. But what is it that you say? See, knowing who God is and the life that he's called you to is the greatest revelation that you could ever have in your whole life. But recognition is only the first step. But recognition requires a response. Recognition requires a response. You know, I think it was about five years ago, uh, Darcy and I, 
started looking for our first home. And I was going to all sorts of different open homes in Hamilton because that's where we were looking at the time. And I remember going to this one particular house and they had done a really good job. It was a nice house. And they had this basement area downstairs that they had converted into a really well done bedroom and ensuite. They'd done a beautiful job of it. But doing my due diligence, I wanted to make sure that if I was interested in buying this property, I was buying a legal property. So I called up the council just to chat to them to check if the work was consented. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't. But I'll never forget what the lady on the phone at the council said. She said, well, now that I'm aware of this unconsented work, now that I'm aware, I'm obligated to do something about it. So I like unintentionally dobbed in the owners and they're going to get in trouble for their unconsented work. But I was just doing my due diligence. I'll never forget what she said. Now that I'm aware, I'm obligated to do something about it. Your recognition that Jesus is Lord, your recognition of the life that He has called you to live is amazing, but it cannot stay at recognition because our recognition requires a response. Another way to say it would be this, revelation brings responsibility. Now that I know, oh, I've been privy to a different set of vision, a different scope for my life. Now that I'm aware, actually that requires a response from me. And it's really interesting because this passage of Scripture that we just read, where Jesus is having a conversation with His disciples, and He says, who do the crowds say that I am? Okay, I recognize that you, you note that. And now who is it that you say that I am? And they say, well, Jesus, you are the Lord. You are the promised Messiah. The very next section of Scripture, the very next paragraph, He says, okay, now this is the response I need from you. If you're actually going to recognize me as the Lord, as the Savior, as the promised Messiah, then this is the response I require. So we pick it up again in Luke 9 from verse 23. It says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit their very self? Everyone say bad trade. Whoever is ashamed of me and, and my words, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be ashamed of them when He comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I want us to just for a couple of moments put our microscope over this verse. Because I know many of us have heard that before. We've heard that, that scripture, but maybe we haven't stomached the, the magnitude of that invitation. He start at the beginning. He says, Then He said to them all, it was bad enough that the disciples were hearing that their Jesus would suffer, be rejected, and go and die on a cross. And now he's telling them that they must do the same, or at least have the same intention, that their fate may not be a cross, but it may be. But either way, they were prepared to go there. And then he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As Jesus spoke these words, everyone knew what Jesus meant. In the Roman world, a man, a man that would die on a cross, he had to first carry that cross, or at least the horizontal beam, to the point of execution. See, when the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang him on a cross, but they first hung a cross on him. Carrying a cross always led to death on a cross. There, there were no two ways about it. No one carried it for fun. It wasn't like, all right, kids, go out and play and go carry your cross. Like, this was a serious thing. And so the first hearers of Jesus saying that they didn't need an explanation of the cross. They knew it was an unrelenting instrument of torture, death, and humiliation. If someone took up his cross, he never came back. It was a one-way journey. And the real-life crosses of the Roman world, no one took them up, so to speak. It wasn't like a voluntary action, like, here I am, I will go and take up my cross. It was forced upon people despite their willingness. 
And here Jesus says that those who follow him must voluntarily take up their cross. Like you've actually considered it and you've chosen it. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It's interesting because Jesus makes deny himself and take up his cross equal. And the two phrases essentially mean the same thing. The cross wasn't about self-promotion. It wasn't about self-affirmation. The person carrying the cross knew that they could not save themselves and that self was destined to die. And so denying yourself means that we choose to live as an, othered, an others-focused person. We're not so self-focused, but we are others-focused. Jesus was the only person to do this perfectly, but we are to follow in His steps. I love this part, to take up his cross daily. And so Jesus makes it really clear in this moment that he's speaking spiritually by adding in the word daily because you couldn't be like literally crucified every day and yet every day we could carry the same attitude to carry our cross and die to oneself. This is following Jesus at its simplest. He carried a cross and so his followers carry a cross. He walked to his self-death and so must those who choose to follow him. This is like the complete opposite message that we get from society. This is the complete opposite message that culture is trying to feed us. If I could try to summarize today's culture in one short phrase, I might put it like this. You do you. You do you. You know, we're getting our carpets replaced real soon, which like, praise God for that. That's awesome. A couple of weeks to go. And uh, one of the guys that work at the local carpet thing, he came in to just suss it out and make sure we're all good to go. And I was chatting with him and he's a lovely guy and he loved our facilities. And I invited him to church. Like, you need to come and hang out with us at church. You'll love it. And he explained how I used to be in church and all that sort of thing. Like, he's not opposed to it. Like, one day he might wander in. Um, classic joke about flames and lightning. You know how it is. Like, it's all good. We don't have any of that here. Um, but it was so interesting what he said to me. He said, you know, I used to go to church and all that sort of thing. Like, I'm okay with it. But, and then he said it like this, you know, like, I pray in my own way. And I've got like my own sort of relationship with God. He says, look, the way I've approached it has always worked really well for me. And obviously I was kind and polite, but inside I was like, oh, that's not the point. <laughs> it's not meant to work really well for us. God is not there for our satisfaction. There is life, there is blessing, there is abundance that comes in giving our life to God, but He's not an add-on at the checkout because He's helpful in this season of life. And we live in a culture that is trying to erode away this immovable sense of right and wrong, coining stupid phrases like, live your truth and you do you. I'm wondering what has led to us thinking that me doing me was the best option. <laughs> As a Christian, I have not been called to do me. I have been called to imitate Christ. And that's why it says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I do it with faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was clear that there are times when the majority of people, the society around us are gonna think and act in a certain way, but that that majority doesn't equal an authority. And you've been called to align your life with Christ, not an ever-changing and shifting world. And that can be easier said than done, right? We're well aware of that. To go against the grain, to uphold an unchanging truth, to stand firm amidst the fire of a judgmental culture. I've got a few, in our, a few minutes left, I've got a few quick tips that can help us be people that might think differently from the crowd, but in a God-honoring way. First thing is this, set your stance in Scripture. Set your stance in Scripture. 
You know, we read about the Israelites in the Old Testament. These were God's people, His chosen nation. And one of the most core aspects of that relationship is that He called them to be set apart, to run in a different lane, to stand out for righteousness. The Israelites didn't like walk on their hands, use a funny language and hold really obscure beliefs for the sheer goal of being different. There are all sorts of odd beliefs that you could hold and you would very much make yourself different and you would very much stand out. But that wasn't the point. They trusted God's word and his direction on how they should be different. The point is not difference. The point is righteousness and holiness, which is quite often quite different. Titus chapter 2 from verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, dying to self, and to live self-controlled, no KFC, upright and godly lives in the present age. See, most people in our society would say, it's a good idea to eat healthy and get great sleep. You don't need to go against the grain to be different. Like, that's probably true. You don't need to be doing all-nighters jacked up on Red Bull, like, called to be different, standing out for the Lord. Like, the, <laughs> the point is not difference. But then also, that same society, that same group of people might say that, well, our enemies should be shunned. That they deserve the pain and suffering they get after all they did to me. And yet God calls us to think and act differently from the crowd. His instruction is built on a foundation of love, to forgive and love our enemies to speak life over them, to pray for God's breakthrough in their world, even though they've wronged us. You know, there are gonna be a whole bunch of things that believers and unbelievers are actually in perfect harmony and agreement with. But then there are gonna be things that aren't, things that do not line up. And my question for you is, how do you know? Who gets the final say? What voice carries the most authority? And this is why it is absolutely critical for every single person to know the Word of God. Great coming to church, great sitting under teaching. I love that. It's part of God's plan. But for you and yourself, you need to know the Word of God. See, the difference is that as Christians, our standard is external from us. But for unbelievers, their standard is self-defined and self-appointed as trustworthy. There shall be a trustworthy leader among us, and I have appointed me. Remember that we are in this world, but not of this world. We can find ourselves in a culture, in an environment, in a society, and yet still stand out for righteousness, not being weird for the sake of it, but stand out according to God's word and instruction for us. You're allowed to think differently from the crowd. But when you ensure that your view is biblical, then what you're gonna find is that your words bring life, your actions bring love, your willingness to forgive brings freedom, and your generosity brings breakthrough. Our recognition of God's word to be alive and holy brings a responsibility to live according to it. We can be different, but it doesn't make sense to be unless our stance is in Scripture. We shouldn't have a herd mentality. We should have a word mentality. Second tip is this. Keep your response respectful. Keep your response respectful. Man, this is challenging because God has not only called us to be set apart, but He asked us to give re re be ready to give an explanation as to what we believe. Like we actually haven't been given permission to just believe what we believe and do us. We actually have been asked to be prepared to share that in an articulate way. Jesus gives us permission to think differently from the crowd, but then he says, I want you to have a sound understanding as to why it is that you see and think and behave differently. First Peter chapter three from verse 13 says, now who will wanna harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. 
So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. We stop there. We're like, I like that verse. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. You know, it can be really hard to listen to or consider someone's stance if they come across as really closed off to honest conversation. And so it's okay to think differently from the crowd, but first and foremost, our goal is to seek to understand before we seek to be understood. Believers can have great confidence and assurance in the truth of God's Word, but that doesn't mean we need to be arrogant or condescending. Get this, people are not stupid for not believing in God. And how can I say that? Because believing in God is a matter of faith, and faith is not a matter of intellect. You you can't convince someone to put their faith in God. You may be able to use evidence and things that we have as uh, as a presentation to present to someone that perhaps the world was created, perhaps there's intelligent design, perhaps there's all of that, but the step of faith is always a step of faith. And because faith is not intellect, it means someone is not stupid if they don't see it like you see it. Now, they may be wrong, that's possible, but they're not stupid. Here's another verse that sheds some light on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them and they can't understand it. For those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. And so for us to be ready to give an account for the hope that we have, we have to open our mouth. We have to understand the basics of what we believe and why we believe it so that God could use us in that way. But it also needs prayer. We need God to open people's hearts and bring down the strongholds that they may become spiritual people that could receive this truth from God. Keys, you can join me. That'd be awesome. It's really important that we don't expect unbelievers to act like believers because of course they don't. Like, of course they don't. Like, let's just be real. They have a completely different foundation. Unbelievers have a foundation that is based either internally decided or based on the society that we have that is always shifting and moving. And yet for the believer, our foundation has been the same and has never moved. Those are two very different foundations. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. Like, you don't. The more you know of God's Word, the richer your relationship would be. And I think the more that God could potentially use you. But you don't have to be that. But I think every mature Christian in the room should be able to explain the significance of Jesus dying on the cross. They should be able to explain what that means for us as people and how somebody else could respond to receive that free gift of forgiveness and the promise of eternity in heaven. Now you might be here, it's your first time. You're like, I don't know how to explain that. That's all good. Maybe you're young in your faith. That's totally fine. For you, you just take the next step in front of you. But for some people here, You've been walking with God a long time. You're very familiar with church. Could I challenge you? If you don't know how to do that just yet, it's not as complicated as it sounds. That is a good next step for you to take some practical steps to being able to explain why Jesus died on the cross, why that's important for us as humanity, and how someone can actually respond to receive that forgiveness for their sin that separates them from God. And Alpha is an amazing course that we run that is a great next step if you haven't done it. It's kind of halfway through now, but for next term, consider it. Sign up to Alpha. You're like, but I've been a Christian 30 years. Cool, but can you explain that clearly and simply to someone who doesn't believe? If not, then Alpha is probably a really good next step for you. 
Look, don't believe the, the lie that development equals progress. It doesn't. Development does not equal progress. Development is just headed in the same direction. Development is the working on or the building on of the same idea. Progress must be defined as headed in the right direction. If I wanna drive to Hamilton, don't know why I would, but if I did, and I was on the Northern Motorway, to continue going forward would not be progress at all. I love how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity worded it. I wouldn't even attempt to word it better than he does. I wanna read you the short passage that captures it beautifully. He says, look, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back the soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when we do arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. You know, as long as there have been people, there have been attempts to do things our own way instead of God's way, to choose our own path, a path that we think is better than God's path. Crowd mentality tells us to present ourselves as strong, as competent, to come across as all together. But that sort of thinking just lands us all on the same merry-go-round of exhaustion, disappointment, and frustration. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He was clear, He was decisive. That was gracious for Him to make it so clear for us. There was one, one road, but access to that road has been given to you freely today. In fact, when talking about roads, two roads, Jesus says in Matthew 7, He says, wide is the road, and broad is the gate that leads to destruction and many people take it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the road that leads to life. Turns out that the majority don't always get it right. Maybe you're here today and you would say, I've gone too far down the right path, wrong path, sorry. Well, the most progressive person that you could be is to be the person that heads back to the start and begins a journey on the right path that actually leads to life. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever should believe in him and him alone shall not perish but have everlasting life that is God's promise to us today